Well, if you would, please remain standing and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, and this afternoon our verses will be verses 3 through 7. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 7, and the Word of God says, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or idolatrous man who is, or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Your Word is true. Your Word is right. Your Word stands forever, regardless of what our culture says, regardless of what our culture promotes, regardless of what our sinful flesh will desire. And Lord, we ask that now You would be with us, that You would speak to us by Your Spirit through this text, Lord, that this would push us on to greater and greater degrees of holiness and a hatred of sin and a love for what you have done for us in setting us free from the bondage to such vices as are listed here. Would you be glorified this day in your name? Amen. We have before us a passage this afternoon that essentially kind of places us right in the middle of Paul's practical exhortations and even commands to the Ephesian church. If you have been at Heritage Grace for any length of time, then you likely know that the first three chapters of Ephesians primarily focuses on what are called the indicatives of the Christian life. That is, those things that are, those things that are a reality, whether we actually perceive them or not, because the truth of the matter is, sometimes we don't always perceive what we really have in Christ. And the last three chapters focus on the imperatives. In other words, because these things are, here is now what you must do. Here is how you must conduct yourself as a Christian. Here is how you must walk not to be saved, but rather because you have been saved. And this is the crux of the Christian life, is it not? What does it matter if you're theologically sound and astute if your conduct is unholy and not in line with what God's Word teaches? And this is something we need to be continually reminded of, especially in Reformed circles where Theology likes to reach the greatest heights. We need to be reminded the practical matters too. 
Theological understanding is not the end-all, be-all of the Christian life. It certainly is an aspect and a necessary component of the Christian life. But it is not the end-all, be-all. It plays a specific role, if you will, and it is that of knowing more of Christ, being conformed more to his likeness, knowing what he teaches us about himself and what he has done for us. And therefore, our theological understanding should inform how we must live in this life. Not an option. How we must now live. Because what ultimately matters, as I said, is conformity to Christ's likeness. And this certainly is something that Paul uh, understood and something that he taught. In fact, look with me, if you will, at Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. Here is what the Word of God says. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love and being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This phrase, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, This propels us into the realm of the practical. The practical outworking of our faith. This certainly doesn't mean that there's no theological truths present, but certainly the thrust is now practical in nature. In many ways, we could call this the summary statement of all that follows, namely that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called, and what follows from this text is foundations, if you will, general classifications, specific instruction as to how this is done. For example, verses 4 through 16, this provides us with the foundation of unity and the various gifts that God has given, pastors, teachers, the church body, his spirit, by which unity and maturity can be fostered and developed. Verses 17 through 24, This provides us with general instructions related to the Christian walk. What we see here in general terms is a a distinction between those inside Christians and those outside Gentiles. What we see here present is the put-off, put-on aspect. The putting away of the old man and the putting on of the new man. And what we see in our current passage and really primarily next week is this aspect of walking in light and not darkness, that we are to be light in the world. And in verses 25 all the way up to chapter 5, verse 2, there's a more specific instruction that takes place, right? Paul lays out more specific details. Don't lie. Speak truth. Don't steal. Watch how you speak. Remove bitterness, so on and so forth, that then culminates in the imitation of God and walking as Christ Jesus has loved us, walking in a manner as he has loved us. And so this leads us to our current passage. It's not, it is here that Paul lays out even more specifically a particular area of focus. And he does so by listing six characteristics that have to do with the conduct and speech that are not to be part of the believer's life. I say that this is a more, more specific focus because while there are six characteristics listed, they center on one topic, 
One topic, sexual immorality. The Roman culture was vile. It was laden with all types of sexual immorality, from images to prostitution to homosexuality, you name it, they were likely taking part in it. And it was within this culture that the Ephesian church operated, and within this culture that the body of that church lived. Does it sound familiar? Therefore, Paul, knowing this, instructs them as to how they were to conduct themselves ultimately as light in the midst of darkness. And while this was written, you know, almost 2,000 years ago, this text still has relevance today. And it always will. Why? Well, obviously, it's the Word of God. It will always be relevant. I don't care what the world says. But in addition to this, we too live in a culture that is dominated and fascinated with sexual immorality in any form that it can be found. We have unfettered access to pornography in ways that have never been imagined before. In fact, it is getting worked into our day-to-day lives whether we recognize it or not. There are websites and apps that are specifically built for the purpose of finding partners to fornicate with and and apps that are built to find somebody to go commit adultery with. And with the emergence of social media, it has become easier for these things to be propagated and to have access to. Our culture is intent and even militant about the sexualization of our children. The homosexual agenda, LGBTQ, so on and so forth. And therefore, Paul's instruction is certainly relevant and much needed in our day. We need to be instructed, to be reminded, to be exhorted as to how we are to walk as lights in the midst of darkness. And so how exactly are we to do that? Well, this week we will be focusing on the negative commands, those things that we're not to do. And next week we will be looking specifically at more of the positive, those things that we are to do. And so our outline this afternoon is as follows. First, we have Paul's instruction, the abstaining from sexual immorality in both conduct and speech. Secondly, the warnings that those who practice these things, they have no inheritance of the kingdom. And in fact, they face the wrath of God. And so finally, that leads to the to the strong exhortation that Paul gives to not be partakers with them. So first, the instruction to abstain from what Paul later calls the unfruitful deeds of darkness, those things which are done in secret. As I said, he narrows this focus to that topic of sexual immorality. Now at first glance, this may seem like an odd transition. He just got done speaking about imitating God, and all of a sudden he's moving towards the topic of sexual immorality, right? That's what he says. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. See, what is present here is a contrast, right? He says, he says but immorality and impurity or greed must not be named among you as is proper among saints. And so... There is a contrast established between the imitation of God the Father who sacrificially gave his son for us and of Christ who sacrificially gave himself for us. 
and the self-centered, self-indulgent sensuality of the culture. Therefore, following this positive instruction or command to imitate God in Christ Jesus, Paul begins with a list of sinful desires that are expressed in both conduct and speech that are opposite, that are contradictory to the manner to walking in a manner worthy of our calling. Deeds that are focused ultimately on self-pleasure and selfish desires. These unfruitful deeds have no place in the body of Christ. And Paul begins this list with immorality. Now I'm sure many of you, if you had to guess, could come pretty close to guessing the Greek word that is used here for immorality. It is porneia. It is from this word that we derive the word, or our word, pornography. Generally, our English word tends to have a very narrow focus. It is generally related to images of various types. However, in the Greek, this word is much more broad and inclusive. Lying behind this meaning of porneia are the acts of fornication, which is sexual relationships prior to marriage. Behind this word is adultery, which relates to sexual relationships while married with somebody that is not your spouse. It refers to homosexuality and prostitution and and so forth. And it is this behavior that is to have no place in the body. It is this behavior that we are to abstain from. We see this expressed, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 7. Here Paul says, For this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all of these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Paul is very clear. What does our sanctification entail? Abstinence from sexual immorality. The ability to control our bodies rather than to be controlled by lustful passion like those Gentiles, those outside the church, right? Those in the world is a necessity. It's another way essentially of saying don't be partakers with them. And Scripture teaches not just the abstinence of such activity. In other words, don't just do this. But it's as if we're to even go further. Scriptures teach that we're to flee from such deeds. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.18. Quite simply, it's a longer verse, but I'm just going to give you the first sentence. Flee immorality. Flee immorality. Immorality is not something that we should tolerate. Immorality is not something that should become normalized. Immorality should always shock us, should always disgust us, and it is something that we should flee from. But the world tells us to cozy up to immorality. This is how it happens, especially for single people. You know what they say? You're going to marry that individual anyway. So what's the big deal if you are intimate with them beforehand? Well, the big deal 
is that God has said, flee immorality. We don't live our lives according to the culture. We live our lives according to the word of God. And he says, flee immorality. But in addition to this, Paul includes any impurity. Uh, The literal rendering, rendering of this word would be any substance that is filthy or unclean. It really refers to a general impurity, a general uncleanness. We see this, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 2.3. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. See, impurity there doesn't have a sexual connotation behind it. Impurity there is speaking to the motives with which they came to them. However, there are many instances in which the meaning is related to sexual impurity, sexual behavior that is not proper. And as is usually the case, context will be key. Take, for example, Romans 1.24. If you want, you can turn there. Romans 1.24. This is what we read there. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And in verses 26 and 27, we receive more detail as to this impurity. Notice what is written. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Going back to 1 Thessalonians 4, did you catch what was mentioned in verse 7? There too we read, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity. And we just read right before that was referenced sexual immorality. And finally, Galatians 5.19, in the lists of the deeds of the flesh, what do we find? But impurity once again linked with immorality and preceding sensuality. This threefold link once again pointing to sexual impurity. And so such is the case in our present passage. In view is not this general uncleanness of being impure. In view is the impurity that would come from acting immorally. Paul leaves no wiggle room here. For well, he didn't specifically identify such and such. But he says, any impurity, any impurity, whatever doesn't fall under porneia is covered here. This is very applicable in our day and age in which the world is continually devising more and more ways to feed their sexual desires and their lusts. It is as if Paul is saying, let me be very clear here. Any impurity, any sexual deviation outside of what God has explicitly allowed is not to be named among you. And this devising of more and more ways leads us to this third item, that of greed. Now, what is meant by greed here? There are some commentators that think that this word greed is going to uh, refer to greed of possessions, greed of money, the accumulation of all the things of the world. And I am sure this is what likely comes to mind when we hear that word. However, 
I believe based on the immediate context, and I also side with those commentators that hold this position, that the greed that is mentioned here is not referring to materialistic greed. It is a greed of a sexual nature. It is a greed that is insatiable, a greed that wants more and more of the pleasures of the flesh. You see, Scripture speaks much on greed in general. We can certainly think of Christ's teaching that we're not to store up treasures on earth or the rich man who didn't want to part with his possessions. Uh, and Paul warning those, right, who want to get rich and who love money. There is much in Scripture that speaks about that type of greed. But the greed here, following the prior two uh, items in this list, is focused on uh, sexual greed, as it were. A greed, like I said, that is insatiable. This is what we see conveyed in Ephesians 4. If you just want to look over there, Ephesians 4 and verse 19. Listen to what we read there. And they... This is speaking of the Gentiles, those outside the church. They have become callous. They have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity. And then here's the key. With greediness. With greediness. For the world, there is never enough. They never have their fill of sexual immorality. Uh, they think that others in the world exist solely for their own pleasure their own desires, their own gratification. And ultimately, it is this greed that corresponds to covetousness. Actually, if you look at verse 5, Paul repeats this threefold list, or, uh, except their greed is replaced with covetousness. And this co the covetous man is identified as an idolater, and so what you essentially have is the one that is pursuing after these things is an idolater. Their God is self-pleasure. Their God is their sensuality. And it is these things from which the body of Christ must abstain. Look again at, at our text. Paul says, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not be named among you, as is proper among saints. So contrary are these things as, as to how we are to walk that they're not even to be named among us. They're not to be identified with us. This prohibition is strengthened when we consider the, it in conjunction with verse 12, in which Paul says, it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. And so the logic follows like this. If it's disgraceful to even speak about these things, then certainly it is disgraceful to even have them named among us, which would mean that we're participating in these things. You see, there is a proper way to walk that is fitting, and there is an improper way to walk that is not fitting saints. There is a way that as saints, as set-apart ones, that we are to conduct ourselves. And it is not to be in lustful passion, even as Peter says, for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. That, that time has come and gone. If you are in Christ, mark it. That time is gone for you to go after those desires. We have a new desire. We have been set free from the passions of the flesh. And we have been set free so we can have des holy desires 
and to live righteously in this present age. The conduct of those inside the church is to be holy. We have undergone a categorical shift, if you will. We went from darkness to light, from sinner to saint. It is not, does not mean that saints don't sin, but what it does mean is that we are no longer characterized by sin. The holiness that we are to pursue, the be holy as I am holy command is far-reaching. The holiness fitting saints is an all-encompassing holiness that impacts the whole of our being. And this is what Paul shows because he goes from our conduct to our speech. And elsewhere, actually, if you think about it, if you think to, to Romans 12, right, we're to be uh, transformed by the renewing of our mind. It is a thoroughgoing holiness. It is Christ's likeness that Paul is after. He's not concerned with merely ensuring the outside conduct is proper, but also that the speech of the saints is proper as well. And so Paul moves from conduct that is not fitting to speech that is not fitting. This is what he says, And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Again, with these three terms uh, listed here, you will find a variation among the commentators as to what is specifically in view. In other words, do these three terms refer to how we're to speak in general? Or do they have reference to speech that is laden with sexual connotations? There are numerous texts throughout Scripture that have to do with how we speak. Uh, just in chapter 4 of Ephesians, right? Paul said that, the, uh, that unwholesome words are not to come out of our mouth, but only those that are for edification, only those that are for building up, not to tear each other down. And in Colossians 3 and verse 8, Paul says that abusive speech is to be put aside. So once again... There are plenty of passages that speak about how we're to use our words. Here, in this context, the focus is on those words that would be laden with sexual meaning and, 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 and uh, have that type of connotation. Paul has just finished addressing conduct that is sexually immoral and now moves to speech that can so easily accompany that type of conduct. We don't have the time to break down each of these terms, but the overall gist of these terms relates to speech that is obscene, speech that is vulgar, speech that is dirty, words that have double entendres to them, double meanings. Speech that expresses itself. Uh, this is what one commentator says. All three terms refer to a dirty mind expressing itself in vulgar conversation. And so we are certainly looking at conversation that contains suggestive innuendos. We have all likely encountered this type of conversation at some point in our life. You can think of conversations with friends, conversations with families or coworkers, conversations in the shows and movies that we watch, in which it is filled with this type of obscene and filthy content. The world speaks this way because it thinks this way. We are to have a different mind than what the world has. For the saint, these patterns of speech are not fitting. They're not to be associated with. These two should not be named among us. And unfortunately, unfortunately, if we're honest, there are times where it is among us. 
And if we're honest, we can admit that it is hard and it is difficult. Uh, We fear man. Sometimes we are taken off guard and so we give the uncomfortable laugh. Or we don't want to be seen as an outcast and so we jump in. But it must not be this way. This is not what God has called us to. You see, rather than speaking this way, our conversation or our speech should be that of thanksgiving. Instead of a demeanor dominated by sensuality in both conduct and speech, there is to be the giving of thanks. Thanksgiving should be the pattern of the Christian life. We are to give thanks in all things. Our prayers are to be made with thanksgiving. The whole attitude of the Christian is to be oriented toward thanksgiving, acknowledging all that we have comes from Him. And in this particular context, with what has just preceded it, the thanksgiving specifically in view here is the thanksgiving that we are to have for the marriage bed. It is not a general thanksgiving It is a thanksgiving for the blessing of the marriage bed that God gives good gifts. Rather than living to fulfill the lust of the flesh with a continual desire for more, we are to be thankful. Instead of speaking perversely, we are to give thanks, to praise Him from whom all blessing flow. The world devalues the marriage bed. The world would have us to believe that intimate relationships and all that goes along with it are a right That everyone is free to pursue any type of sexual intimacy however they please, whenever they please, with whomever they please. But that is far from the truth. Sexual intimacy is not a right. It is a gift. A gift from God. It is a gift for which we are to be thankful. It is not something to be pursued according to our own self-interest, but rather something to be enjoyed and given thanks for in the context of marriage and marriage alone. To hold any other view has drastic consequences. We need to be very clear on that. Paul was very clear on that. There is much at stake, and so he leaves no room for anyone to misunderstand the seriousness of what he has just said. They need to abstain from the unfruitful deeds of darkness, and that is not optional. Why? Well, we see this answer in the two warnings that Paul gives for those who practice these deeds. Namely, that they have no inheritance in the kingdom, and they are recipients of God's wrath. You see, the world would like us to believe that there's no consequences That there's no consequences to living immorally. No, no, no. There are wages that come from living immorally. And it's to not have an inheritance, and it is to receive the wrath of God. This warning, this is what Paul says here. He says, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You see, this warning is not open to dispute. It is something that is readily known. It is a certainty. The one who falls into any of these three descriptions, the one who is consumed with this conduct and this type of speech, that one who is immoral, who is impure, who is covetous, He has no inheritance. 
Now, just to be clear, the individuals that are in view here are those who are truly characterized by these deeds. They practice these deeds. They are defined by these deeds. It pertains to these sons of disobedience as Paul identifies them, to those who are truly outside the church. It doesn't necessarily have reference to those who may have fallen into some type of sexual sin at some point or have had conduct or conversation that has been sinful like what is described here. I stress this because there may be some present here who have a weak or tender conscience and are thinking, well, I grievously sinned in such and such a manner after my conversion and I know that I've genuinely repented. Does this mean that I fall into this class, into this category? And I would say the answer is no, not necessarily. If you've truly exhibited godly sorrow that leads to repentance, then you can rest assured that God has forgiven you. He has been merciful to you. That's what we read in 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from our sin, from all unrighteousness. But what Paul's point is that you cannot hold in one hand immorality and all the desires of the world that go along with that and at the same time have an inheritance in the other. It is impossible. And so Paul says that these individuals have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It doesn't matter what they say, what they claim. They can call themselves a Christian all they want, but their profession is meaningless without any fruit present. Now, when we think of the inheritance, we generally think of something that is future. Uh, like, with the inherit, like a natural inheritance we receive. We receive it usually once somebody dies. It's like later, Right? But Paul here refused, and he, and he does this even in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. This is a more comprehensive list, but listen to what he says. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He says it twice. It is a certainty you cannot partake of these things and at the same time think that you have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. But in our current text, Paul has phrased this in an interesting way because he does so using the present tense. He says he has no inheritance. And so the present rendering implies that here and now the one who practices such deeds has no present inheritance. And most certainly it follows that if he has no inheritance now, he will have no inheritance in the future. In that final day, if you are not found to be in him, then there will be no future inheritance. The present and future reality of this inheritance is supported in the very next phrase. He says he has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. This may initially seem redundant because isn't Christ God? Are there two kingdoms? I thought there was only one kingdom. Well, yes, Christ is God, and no, there are not two kingdoms. And so what exactly is going on here? Well, what we see being described here is both aspects of the kingdom of God, if you will. The present and the future, as one commentator put it, there is a distinguishing between two phases of the kingdom. 
that of the kingdom of Christ and that of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of Christ represents his present rule and reign while his enemies are being put under his feet. And the kingdom of God refers to that future phase in which at the consummation of the ages, Christ will hand over the kingdom to his father. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll read from verse 23. It is here that we see this language of handing over the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 26. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. And then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy will be, that will be abolished is death. And so we see here that Paul is speaking of the absolute exclusion, both now and in the future, of those who practice these deeds of darkness. There is no hope, in other words, if you are practicing these deeds, Paul says. And so instead of a present enjoyment and a glorious expectation of an inheritance of the kingdom to come, there is only a fearful expectation of judgment. And this leads us to the second warning. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of, disobedient, of, the, of disobedience. We are not to be deceived by the empty words of the world. They will tell us that such deeds are okay, that there is nothing wrong with this behavior. They will even twist God's attributes. How do we see this? Well, they say God is love, and therefore he wants you to go and to um, live your life how you please and, and express love how you deem is right. He wants us to pursue our own desires. They will even mock and question the judgment to come. This is what we see in 2 Peter 3, 3 through 4. This is what Peter says, Know first of all that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Brothers and sisters, do not be deceived. What they say carries no weight. They are empty words and empty promises. God has testified that his judgment comes because of these things. The second warning is again in the present form. He says the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It is a present reality, though it is not fully expressed in the greatest measure here and now. So if you would, turn with me to Romans 1, verse 18. Here we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It is presently being revealed. You see, God's wrath isn't only expressed by fire and the weeping of gnashing and teeth in the future. It is even presently revealed now. How? Well, there is a threefold giving over. 
that we see in verses 24, 26, and 28, in which we read that God has given them over to the lusts of their heart, to degrading passions and a depraved mind. This giving over conveys the present judgment of God. We can think of just the various sexually transmitted diseases that people have received because they have lived a sexually promiscuous life. This is what we see uh, in verse, essentially described in verse 27. They receive in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, this giving over doesn't mean that all three of these are present in each and every individual, and it certainly doesn't mean that someone cannot be saved if they've been handed over. Here's the issue, though. We don't know when the complete and total handing over happens. Much like where Pharaoh hardened his heart, And then God hardened his heart. And so there is a need uh, to be on guard, to not flirt with these things as if they will never come about. We can get so close, and that won't be me. No, as I said earlier, these are things that need to be fled. But the wrath of God, as we know, is also a future event as well. We see this in 2 Peter 3. The world that then was, referring to the days of Noah, was destroyed by water in a devastating judgment. The wicked back then never thought it would come. And when it did, they couldn't stop it. And it is no different now. The world can and will mock, but they will not be able to stop the judgment of God that presently comes from coming in its fullest manifestation. Why? Well, because God has said... The present heavens and earth is being reserved for fire. Look at verse 8 of 2 Peter chapter 3. We read, But by his word the present heavens and the earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And then this is what we see in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And just to be clear, this is a judgment that lasts for all eternity and it is absolutely terrifying. It isn't a one-time burning up and then you cease to exist. You are not annihilated, but rather you have a body that is specifically fit for the eternal judgment of God by fire. By fire. It involves weeping, gnashing of teeth, a lake of fire, and it involves an eternity of torment separated from the favorable presence of God. You see, the world's conduct has a certain wage. And we are not to be deceived when they tell us, no, don't worry about that. Because God has spoken that his judgment comes and is coming because of these very things. Peter uses this catalyst, this this judgment uh, uh, to come as a catalyst to holiness. Verse 11, he says, since all these things are going to be destroyed in this way, What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Paul does the same here. He uses these warnings to push us away from even desiring, even tiptoeing up to the sexually immoral lifestyle of the world, of these sons of disobedience, in all its various forms, is not to be trifled with. 
And so what Paul says is, therefore, do not be partakers with them. To partake in this instance is to share with or to become intimately involved with, and so it conveys that there is a closeness and a participation with them in their deeds. And as we said, these, these, the, the, the them is the sons of disobedient, which casts light on the identity of, of who we are to be different from. We're to be different from the world. We're not to, to follow after them and what they do. We're, we're not to go after the culture. But the church community is to be light in a whole world of darkness. Therefore, there is to be a marked difference between the, con- between the conduct and speech of the body of Christ when compared to those outside the church. As the body of Christ, we are to have fellowship with him and with one another and not with the world and their deeds. We, as the body of Christ, are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, and this involves abstaining from the sexually immoral practices of the culture around us. Brothers and sisters, the battle is real. It is real. And it is ongoing. We are surrounded and are continually being pressed in on by the culture. They want to shape us into their mold. There are snares that are laid throughout our cultural landscape that are strategically placed to entrap us. To entrap us. The culture is after our souls, it is after our marriages, and it is after our children. We need to wake up to what is going on in the culture around us. This isn't a game that is being played. And so the question is, are you on guard? Are you alert? Are you sober-minded to these things? Or are you going through your days mindlessly just going here, going there. It is what it is. Paul tells us, no, we need to wake up. This is real. There is an eternity of hell that awaits those who want to practice these deeds. You see, it seeps in. It seeps in. It doesn't, it's not all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're like, oh, I'm sexually immoral. That's not how it works. You see, it seeps in how. What are we listening to? What is the music that we are putting in our ears that goes to our mind that is supposedly supposed to be transformed and renewed? What are we putting before our eyes in the shows that we watch? The shows that we know are filled with all the sexual innuendos you can imagine. The movies that are filled with so much promiscuity It's like, what are we doing? What are we doing? I know. I know this will make us the awkward ones in the workplace and the awkward ones in the family. But brothers and sisters, we have a high calling. A high calling, and therefore we need to walk in a high manner. Because look at what is at stake. Your soul is at stake. Your soul is at stake. Now, to those parents here, I know I have addressed a topic that you maybe haven't discussed with your children yet, and I tried to do so in a modest manner, while at the same time doing justice to the text that is before us. But what we as parents must realize is the world is preaching a message to our children. For example, you want to talk about 
you know, being relevant today. I just saw a tweet a couple days ago, and it was this headline that essentially this um, man, he goes to like the Oscars and all that type of stuff, right? And he shows up in the Oscars, and he's full on dress, poofed out. That individual is now going to appear on Sesame Street. Now, say what you want about Sesame Street. The point is, they are after our children. And so we need to be teaching our children what the Word of God says, because the world is saying, this is okay. What are we telling our children? We shy away from difficult topics like this because it's uncomfortable. But their soul is at stake as well. There's no greater way to love them than to tell them the truth of what God's word says. It's difficult. I know it. I experience it. Thankfully, my wife seems to be really good at it. But they are trying to indoctrinate our children. The world, the flesh, and the devil form quite the hostile partnership. It is an enemy that seems insurmountable. And by all accounts, it is insurmountable if we're left to ourselves. And so what are we as believers to do? Well, in the words of Pastor Lynn's sermon last week, we are to look up. We are to look up. We're not to look at ourselves. We're not to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and say, I'm not getting on that website, or I'm not going to this, or I'm not going to that, and I'm going to do it in my own strength. No, no, no. We look up to the one who has freed us from the bondage to sin, who has set us free to pursue a life of holiness and righteousness. And we, as we even heard in the communion message, we fix our eyes on him. We lay aside all the encumbrances, all the sin that so easily entangles, and we fix our eyes on Christ. We look up to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, Oh, Lord, you know the culture in which we here and now presently live. And Lord God, we beseech you that you would hold us fast. Lord, we trust not in ourselves. We trust not in our own doing, our own works, our own determination. But Lord, we look up to you. We cry out to you, Father, that you would Give us holy conduct, holy speech. Help us to be lights in this world. Help us, Lord, to show by the way that we live the work that you have done in us. Purify us, Lord. Sanctify us. Conform us more and more uh, to your image. In your name, amen.